It was the summer of 1987. A young speechwriter by the name of Peter Robinson was playing his role in crafting what would be one of the most iconic speeches of all time. Really iconic because of one phrase that was within that speech. Being as though it was a significant speech, there was some debate surrounding the context of the speech. Be that as it may, the overall thought is that the speech was appropriate minus this one phrase. Several people would go as far as saying that it's just too outlandish, it's too provocative. One White House official would go as far as saying that is unpresidential. However, Peter Robinson knew that that phrase and that speech reflected the heart of President Ronald Reagan. You see, the timing was perfect. The world was becoming increasingly weary of a decades-long Cold War. The words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, had to be said. As a matter of fact, it was presidential, was it not? Some might even say, in some respects, prophetic. Because it wasn't but two years later from that summer of 1987 that the wall of Berlin separating East and West Germany would come crumbling down. A sort of reconciliation, removal of a barrier between communism and democracy. That said, that word reconciliation will be our primary focus here today. Biblical reconciliation, to be exact, or once again, the tearing down of a wall or barrier. Having said that, though, in a word such as this, reconciliation, it affords me the opportunity well within the context of Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, to touch upon another hot-button topic in today's day and age. That topic is that of racial reconciliation. Can these words coexist? Is this a helpful term? What should be our approach to what some would call a massive dividing wall labeled as racism? Very near and dear to our culture in this day and age, but as we will see, as Solomon said, nothing new under the sun. Well, this is why we love the Scripture. It is the truth. It is the Word of God. And it provides everything that the man of God needs to be equipped and complete for every good work. Amen? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 we come to a passage that actually provides insight to these types of questions. Don't forget, even in our introductory message to this epistle, the ethnic 
tension that existed between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesus. You see, whether it's the first century or the 21st, there's just no escaping this type of sin of ethnic hatred, a sin that is stemmed from, rooted deep within the sin of pride. What's more, in all reality, there's an even bigger wall that we need to address. A bigger wall that needs to come down. One that's like the great wall of China when it comes to man's relationship with God. You see, the great wall of sin not like the Great Wall of China, is impassable. Not to mention, to use another Pilgrim's Progress illustration, which you know I'm partial to, the city of Vanity Fair lies at its base, full of trappings that lure and pull the curtain, if you will, over the eyes of man, blinding him to his need to pass through. We need a wall breaker. We need a wall maker. One who breaks down the wall of sin that separates us from what Christian and hopeful and pilgrim's progress we're on a journey to. Celestial city. Because there's no attaining celestial city with this wall. Apart from the grace of God. We need a flood of epic proportions. One that will engulf Vanity Fair. And leave it in ruins. One that will wash away the blindness of our eyes. One that will... Cover the entire earth. All mankind, that is. Beloved, this is what we have in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. One unifying thrust and force like no other. The blood of Christ reconciles sinners from all mankind. If you remember anything here today, remember that. The blood of Christ reconciles sinners from all of mankind. This is the catalyst behind several of these previous questions. This is the foundation undergirding even our title for today, which you can see in your bulletins, is the truth about reconciliation and race. That said, when it comes to our response, I want us to answer one question. How do we live in peace with God and our neighbor? So with that said, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning there, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 22 is our text. I'll only read verses 14 through 16 as a centerpiece. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it. 
having put to death the enmity. You may be seated. So I've got three concentrations for us to consider here this morning. That said, our first one is number one, remember who you were. We'll see this in verses 11 and 12. Now, whether from a natural or spiritual perspective, there can be great benefit in remembering where you came from. Provides perspective, keeps us grounded. To begin this section, Paul's accomplishing both, the natural and the spiritual. Notice first off, he says, therefore, remember. This is actually a command for them to practice this on an ongoing basis. Therefore, remember. And if I were to paraphrase, I would say, remember where you came from. Remember, Gentiles, you were called uncircumcision. Now, staying in the natural realm right now, this term uncircumcision or uncircumcision within Jewish circles was a derogatory term. Picture a scantly and starving dog meandering through the streets. This is how the Jews viewed the Gentiles. Now, as for the Jews, though, that word so-called It's key here. Key when considering this natural perspective. Why were the Jews labeled as so-called circumcision if the uncircumcised were the dogs of the day in their mind? The circumcised are the elite and privileged. Yet, Paul says, so-called circumcision. Why was that the case? Look at the end of verse 11. He says, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Now, we know from the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, 15 and 17, that circumcision served as the picture, if you will, of God's chosen people. Nevertheless, This was always at its core, simply and truly a picture. A picture that progressive revelation would ultimately define. You don't need to turn there, but listen to Paul's words from Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Once again, considering why they were the so-called circumcision. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. So, as for the so-called circumcision or the Jews of this passage, they were surely alienating the Gentiles. Nevertheless, this was, in all reality, nothing but a natural alienation. Why was that? Well, they were in no position to count themselves as privileged They were just as estranged, just as separated from God. It's like the pot calling the kettle black. Be that as it may, for the Gentiles, yes, this remembrance of such separation would have been difficult, yet nonetheless beneficial for perspective. That said, the remembrance of the Spirit Spiritual schism, separation, estrangement is where perspective truly takes shape. Look at verse 12. 
He says, remember, you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God. All, Jew and Gentile alike, apart from Christ, are like foreigners surrounded by blessing, yet living in poverty. Not to mention, woefully blind of their own blighted neighborhood that they lived within. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin, separated from him, strangers and without hope. If Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 was not enough concerning radical depravity for the extent of the entire human race, Jew and Gentile alike, Paul now doubles down. This is like the pride crusher. If there is any reason for ethnic hatred or arrogance with this, you can squash that like a bug. Was there such thing as God's chosen people? Of course there was and is. Nevertheless, salvation has always been by faith, Old Testament or New Whether Gentile or Jew, no human being, no matter what your heritage or ethnicity is, has any reason to boast in anything, let alone ethnic superiority. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, in light of this remembrance of who we were, how does this help concerning the truth about race? We're going to deal with reconciliation in detail in our next two concentrations. But for now, I want us to see a significant point of application. You see... When we truly understand where we came from, and especially from a spiritual perspective, who could ever view themselves as superior to another? Amen? Friends, I've said this before, and I'll repeat it continually for many years to come. Big God theology is crucial and it produces a low view of man, which is essential. Think about it from this perspective. What was at the core of Hitler's demonic idea of a special Aryan race? Nothing but the ridiculous idea that the blonde-haired, blue-eyed man was superior. What's at the core of any ethnic hatred? It's pride. It's the idea that one's more superior than another. Now, maybe by now you might have noticed that I keep using this term ethnic hatred that's intentional and for all intensive purposes should be the term that we use as opposed to the term racism racism in and of itself and we don't have the time to unpack this but really is nothing more than a philosophical construct created by the world Acts chapter 17 verse 26 clearly communicates that there are multiple ethnicities within the world. There is one race. The human race. Nevertheless, 
If the entire human race is born without God, dead in sin, utterly hopeless, the playing field's level, so to speak. Amen? We're all, all, Jew and Gentile, no matter what ethnicity, in desperate need of reconciliation. There's nothing in any of us worthy of a false sense of pride or arrogance. What's more, no matter what ethnicity you've inherited, we all are made in the image of God. So once again, how does this help concerning the truth about race? Well, hopefully, those of you that are born again in the Lord Jesus Christ, washed, sanctified, justified, bought by the blood of Christ, you understand it is by that blood, Revelation 5.9, that he purchased peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Moreover, it's a remembrance such as this that creates a colorblind mindset and understanding. Not an ethnic one. No matter where we come from, no matter what ethnicity we are, an image-bearer perspective. With that said, what about this great wall of sin? That's the priority, is it not? Well, let's answer that with the second concentration. And that's number two. Remember what Christ has done. Remember what Christ has done. We'll see this in verses 13 through 18. Now, I want you to see something right away in, in these first two verses, 13 and 14. Notice another reference to the, those two paramount thematic words in, in Ephesians, in Christ. Notice the passive tense of the verb, have been brought, bought. And then notice the he himself Begin verse 14. So what's the point? We've seen it all throughout Ephesians. You'll see it all throughout the Gospel of John as we've read through that in our Scripture reading. You'll see it all throughout Romans. You will see it throughout all of Scripture. It's about the sovereignty of God. It's about the reality that everything is apart from man and his actions. This is crucial that we understand that God alone is the author of reconciliation. As for that matter, as we've seen in verses 8 through 10, salvation and sanctification as well. This has nothing to do with God and man working together. Now, once again, why is this so essential to grasp. Well, first of all, I'm glad you asked. It serves to protect the church. It serves to protect the church from beliefs or structures or systems that would elevate man and tradition. And in the process, tear down God. Oh, may it never be. Moreover, it keeps us grounded in dependence. Those of you that have had the privilege of being with us on Wednesday night as we go through the Psalms, we see so much of our need to depend upon Christ. What's more, it's that dependence which drives our application, our heart to persevere the truth about salvation, sanctification, and reconciliation is that God alone does the work. 
Friends, you want a massive point of application? I've given you one. I've got several more to give you. Nevertheless, let me give you the greatest point of application you will ever hear from any preacher the rest of your life. There is no amount of specific application in a sermon. Pray more. Evangelize more. Practice hospitality more. Whatever it may be, there is no amount of application that will drive you more than a bigger view of God and a lower view of man. This is what sustains us. When you're in the midst of a storm, it won't be that exquisite application that was offered from a sermon in your past. It will be the realization of this great God in whom you serve. The one in which the psalmist says, the Lord reigns. You can persevere through anything with that type of big God theology. Low view of man. Having said that, look at what God has done alone for us in verse 14. He's given us peace. How? By making both groups into one, breaking down the barrier between God and man. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, as Paul will say in Galatians. To reference Revelation 5, 9 again, he's purchased peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He broke down, he destroyed the dividing wall. Now, this phrase, the barrier of the dividing wall, it is a fascinating picture. It literally could be translated as if it is the middle wall and fence. Now, I know that doesn't sound too fascinating, a middle wall and fence. Let me explain to you why it is fascinating and powerful given this context. As Paul communicated this, this audience would have certainly known what he was referring to. In the Jerusalem temple, there was a middle wall and fence that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the sacred Jews. In Acts chapter 21, we actually see an account of the Jews accusing with hostility the Apostle Paul for bringing a Gentile into this sacred place. A sacred place, albeit, that was punishable by death if a Gentile would enter. Do you see why this picture is so powerful? In the midst of of such level of ethnic hatred. Paul proclaims under the inspiration of the Spirit, Christ has destroyed and broken that wall. I'm feeling it, Colby. Now, as for that barrier, what was it? It was none other than the law. In general, Jews attempted to keep it. Gentiles were unconcerned, in general. Yet, as you can see in verse 15, Christ abolished in his flesh this enmity, which is the law of commandments. Now, Quick word of caution. Does this mean 
that the moral law has now been eliminated? Does this mean that sins such as blasphemy, adultery, murder, idolatry is no longer sinful and applicable? You know the answer to that question. Of course not. The New Testament echoes nine of those Ten Commandments just as they originally were. Although what we can say is this. The keeping of the law is no longer the basis for priority, privilege, or covenant. Romans chapter 6 demonstrates this in, in saying that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. Moreover, why did he do this? Look at the end of verse 15. So that, notice the in himself again. Some of your translations may not read that, but this is the force of the original language. So that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Remember that poverty we lived in from an illustration standpoint? Well, we're no longer in the midst of a blighted neighborhood or home, but we're in a one-of-a-kind, unique, special mansion reserved just for you. Those of you that have been reconciled, established with peace. Oh, beloved, remember what Christ has done. Remember what he's done. On your behalf. The great wall of sin and vanity fares pool has crumbled down like the wall of Berlin. Look at verses 16 and 17. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross having in himself put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, Gentile and Jew alike. How do we live in peace with God? We understand, we realize that if you are in Christ, we remember what he's done. Remember, this was a command, the only command in this section, to remember On the cross, reconciliation was perfect, complete, and specific and intimate for his sheep alone. Jesus Christ said, it is finished. Know that in himself he's put to death the enmity. He's preached peace not just to the Jew, but to you and I, the Gentiles. Amen? Now, there's one other nugget I want you to see here. In this concentration of what Christ has done, notice that word peace. Used four separate times in these verses alone. You think the Spirit's making a point here? Oh, yes, he is. When we remember what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we live in peace. Why, beloved? Why do we live in peace? It's not just because he has preached peace, but as verse 14 says, he is our peace. Friend, when you're in the midst of a storm and the tides of despair and discouragement and fear are flooding and crashing in. Know that Christ is your peace and anchor and rock. Remember what Christ has done. 
We said we needed a wall breaker, a way maker. Well, in verse 18, the way is on display. Look at what he says. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. A wonderful example of the only triune way of reconciliation and salvation. Father, Spirit, and Son. We saw this in the harmony of the Trinity in Ephesians chapter 1. So in light of such glorious truth, and oh how glorious it is, about reconciliation, what about another truth or application concerning race? Don't forget. Remember what we said concerning what would be the most important thing that you would take away from a message such as this. If you remember anything, you remember that the blood of Jesus Christ reconciles sinners from all mankind. Why is that theme so vital in relation to my question concerning race? It's because the gospel is enough. It's because the sufficiency of Scripture alone is enough. We ask the question, is the term racial reconciliation helpful? Oh, friends, I wholeheartedly believe that it's not. In all reality, it can be extremely damaging. In some cases, a counterfeit and different gospel within the church which Paul will say in Galatians chapter 1, let that be accursed. In Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, we see this on display. Everything from a new original sin, racism. A new law, anti-racism a new priesthood ethnic minorities and a new canon books that allegedly help one to understand their so-called privilege beloved you want to know the truth about racial reconciliation in the church, it categorically must be rejected. Why is that the case? It boils down to several components, if not Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, which we can see and I'll address, but I could also say Revelation 22, verse 16, or Romans 1, 16, we do not add anything to the Scriptures. We believe that the Gospel is the power of God for salvation. Amen? What's more, if Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, is not enough, enough to showcase, listen to this, friends, the power of God to destroy ethnic and spiritual barriers, then what are we believing? That's what I would say to these individuals that are bringing this, in many respects, false gospel into the church. Some who are, as we read in John chapter 10, nothing more than the hirelings. Who, when the wolves come, will depart as the sheep are fleeced. So, 
We've seen who we were. We've reflected on what he's done. Let's turn our attention to the final concentration. And that's number three. Remember who you are now. We'll see this in verses 19 through 21. Looking at verse 19, I just love this phrase. Fellow citizens. Think of that for a moment, my friends. Especially considering who you were and who you are now. Strangers and aliens, yet no longer. Excluded from the commonwealth and now fellow citizens. Without God and now members of his household. Oh, how sweet a picture is that. Certainly a lightning bolt for application concerning peace with God and our neighbors. Whatever ethnicity they may be. That said, before we start our final descent to the runway home, I need to briefly address what can be an interpretive issue in verse 20. Look with me. Let me read it. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, I don't have the time in a message such as this to unpack all of this, but let me just remind you as I explain this problem, this problem in some circles that we have a message that speaks to this in great detail called signs, wonders, and miracles, question mark. I would encourage you, if this is not enough to suffice to go back and listen to that message concerning why we believe and understand the biblical perspective that signs and wonders and miracle gifts and apostles were reserved and prophets for the apostolic era or prior. Unique, specific times of ministry where the, where the Lord used things such as this to establish his authority. Signs, wonders, and miracles, question mark is that message. That said, what is this interpretive issue? Some use this passage and others to state that this is reason for understanding that apostles and prophets are still needed in the church today. A charismatic interpretation of 2.20. Nonetheless, for the sake of time today, it's important for you to understand this is simply a reference to the first century church. Apostles, prophets, leaders that were the foundation of the church that Christ birthed at Pentecost. Christ being the cornerstone and the ultimate head. Be that as it may. With that brief aside, look how he closes this passage in verses 21 and 22. Notice the being fitted together and being built together. Both of these are passive. Once again, the subject is receiving the action. God alone has not only reconciled the church, but he's fitting it. And building it together like a bond like no other. A bond like David and Jonathan. A bond like Elijah and Elisha. A bond like Naomi and Ruth. Clearly no room for enmity in a relationship such as that. What's more, it's not a temporary or fleeting relationship. Look at the end of the chapter. He says that 
It is dwelling of God in the Spirit. That word dwelling conveys the sense of permanence, long-lasting, intimate. Piggyback off our several two weeks, simply divine. That said, as we look to close, let me leave you with a couple more final thoughts for application. As born-again believers, when you think of who you are now, live in peace with God, knowing your true privilege, okay? No longer a stranger, excluded, or alienated, but a fellow citizen of God's household. That is your privilege. And in that privilege, we boast in Christ alone because we deserved none of it. Wretched men and women that we were. This will surely cause you to not live with pride or arrogance, but with love for others and confidence in Him, in the one who is your peace, in the one who is the wall breaker, way maker. Likewise, Live in peace with your neighbor. Knowing that if, and it is the fact, the blood of Christ has reconciled sinners from all mankind because of that truth, you can look on all image bearers of God with love and respect. Don't just have a colorblind mindset and understanding. That was our semi-point of application from the first concentration. In light of knowing who we were, it equips us to have a colorblind mindset and understanding. But that's not enough. Don't just reject the false narratives. And false gospels, as we discussed in the second concentration of what Christ has done and why we do reject false gospels. But here's the point, beloved. It's not enough to just understand. It's not enough to just reject. But can we, because of who we are now, fellow citizens proactively, actually look to cross ethnic lines when given the opportunity. Because that is a fellow image bearer of God. And because I am colorblinded, and because I am a fellow citizen, and because God loved me first when I had nothing to give Him, how can I not look at this brother no matter what his ethnicity is, who bleeds red just like me. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Taryn. I think that was her. That made my day. Why would we ever think differently in light of who we were? In light of the beautiful picture of biblical reconciliation, why would we not cross those lines? The blood of Christ reconciles sinners from all mankind. Because of that truth, you 
dear saint of God can live with peace with God and your neighbor, no matter what the ethnicity. Because the plane feels level, amen? And let me just throw this last thought in. I don't have it in my notes, but how could we not talk about biblical reconciliation and not briefly say or think in a size of this room and this many people that perhaps there can be one here today who has never been reconciled to Christ, who still stands in the streets of Vanity Fair with a wall of sin separating you from God. If that is anyone here today, I need you to know the wrath of God abides upon you. Come to Christ and receive biblical reconciliation. Be washed in the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. You will find him to be a wonderful, merciful, and forgiving Savior and Lord. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for your inerrant, inspired, and infallible word that you have left us with. For we have all that we need, O oh God, in this precious word. This word that demonstrates the fact that we have been reconciled with you. This word that clearly demonstrates and calls us to never forget where we came from, but to know that what you have done and who we are is all because of you alone. And in light of that grand, magnificent truth, would you cause us, would you help us by the power of the Spirit to live with all of our hearts, loving you, loving people, and making disciples. In Jesus' name we pray.